0: Hello and welcome to Cordial with Brett Crosley and Tom Bennett, the podcast where we mix and contemplate cordial conversations about the world, the people in it, and their work. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Cordial. In this episode, I chat to Brett Inda who is a professor at Monash University. He's an economist with a special interest in data and econometrics. He has worked across different industries and markets. He has a particular interest in coffee and development. And he also has worked extensively throughout Timor-Leste, tracking the change in development after their revolutionary regime was toppled and they've had some stability over the past decade. So Brett, welcome to the show. How are you?
1: Good. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Brett. Good to be here.
0: If anybody's uh, interested in reading up about you, the first hit they'll get on Google is your Monash University page where you're a professor and you've got a description about what you do. And it's quite an interesting description because you note how in, I guess, experimental economics, what they do is they try test economic theory or the conventional theory and they try find holes in it and reason why the reasons for why economics won't work or the theories in economics won't work in reality. And you say, well, that's probably not super constructive always. And so what you try to do is look for ways that economic theory can work in reality and how it can pull people out of poverty and all sorts of human, social, environmental issues that we face. So um, that is something that I thought was quite rare, especially in um, academic world where people are quite easily critical.
1: Yeah, that, that's a very good point, yeah, because I think, um, yeah, it's easy for us to find uh, problems whether it's in economic theory or whether it's in the way in which development works in the way in which you know we um, address problems in our society Um, but uh, constructive solutions are much harder to find and yet that's actually what we need a lot more effort in both in intellectual community the academic community but in the practitioner world as well yeah Yeah. so I kind of focus try and focus my efforts on that.
0: Mm. Pleasing to hear. So I think maybe it might be a good chance here to give us an idea of how you got into pursuing a PhD and then the, the prof- professorial life, if you will, and what that career has entailed, um, how you've experienced walking between the, the, the line between private enterprises, NGOs and the public sector and being a professor at the same time.
1: Sure. Okay. So you've just asked me to sort of uh, describe my journey from being a 16-year-old at high school through to being a <laughs> 60-year-old <laughs> academic. So I'll try and compress that story quite sure. short in a, in a sort of snapshot kind of a way. But okay. uh, <laughs> um, it, Because it did actually start in high school with okay. uh, a passion for mathematics and a love for economics. Those were the two subjects that I really loved in high school. And mm-hmm. uh, my economics teacher in high school in New Zealand, which is where I grew up, said, if you love uh, economics and you love maths, then, you know, you should pursue a career in economics and particularly in sort of the quantitative side of economics and econometrics. Um, so he got me enthusiastic about that area of, of life and of, of academic pursuit. Um, so he suggested I come to Australia and study at Monash to do my, my undergraduate study because that was very strong in economics and econometrics. And uh, probably had a view at that point to becoming a pretty mainstream sort of economist. So I'd, I, you know, got my little cadetship with the Australian the Victorian, uh, sorry, the Australian Treasury, and um, looking forward to being a, in the Treasury of the Reserve Bank, the sort of dream job of an economic mm-hmm. graduate. Um, but to be honest, I got more interested in research through the undergraduate days, and perhaps a little bit. I always kept asking the deeper questions about, could this be done differently? And Mm -hmm. often in industry or in the public service, people aren't really interested in doing it differently. They're just interested in doing it well, you know, so they don't want to skimp on doing it well, but they don't want you to spend six months digressing to thinking of a different way of doing things. (laughs) Um, Whereas the academic (laughs) community encourages that, and that was definitely the way I was wired up. I'm a very practical person, but to me, that doesn't mean you can't, Deep thinking and and kind of to me research is a very creative innovative process and definitely to me that's what excited me about research is the constant questioning that I had that this is a this is a really neat uh, theory about economics or this is a really neat way to analyze data but uh, surely there's a better way you know it seems like it's not perfect and so I would be always curious as an undergraduate even for that and I remember writing a uh, doing a, an assignment in an undergraduate thing where a subject where I did a good job of the assignment and so on and then I the last part of the assignment I proposed a new method um, for how to tackle this particular problem and the lecturer was very generous to me he said look you know it was a good assignment and the new method was very interesting it was completely wrong but on you for trying <laughs> you know and it was a fatal flaw in my proposal which I hadn't thought about and that was inexperience, but so there was definitely in me always a curiosity for asking that question, how can it done differently? Mm-hmm. So a completely natural thing to do was to give up on the idea of going and being a boring public servant and go and do a PhD.
0: Yeah, and, no disrespect to public servants.
1: Yeah, no, of course, that's right. <laughs> um, and then having done a PhD uh, to uh, think, well, I just love this research game. Uh, there's only one good place to do that then that's at university. So you go from a PhD to being a lecturer um, at a couple of universities but the main obviously the one that I've spent the last 30 plus years is is at Monash. Um, and uh, interestingly the, the pivot and the kind of research and engagement that I have had in the last 10-15 uh, years or so happened around about the year 2000 and it was to do with uh, the debt cancellation Project mm-hmm. that was going on in the late nineteen nineties. Uh, before that time, my research was quite esoteric. I was doing a lot of sort of mathematical econometrics type research, developing new methods for analysing data effectively. So pretty, pretty interesting and fun, sort of mm-hmm. that kind of mathematical curiosity rather than practical relevance. Um, but I got asked by a few friends who were working on the debt cancellation program if there was sort of, you know, they were sort of. The activist types, but they weren't economists. And they said, look, you're an economist. Could you help us with this debt cancellation thing to sort of give us a bit more economic rigor to understanding the issues and give us a bit more sort of authority as we talk about this in the public realm? Because you're an economist, you might be able to do that in an academic. Um, So I read about debt cancellation and about sources of origins of third world debt and You know, World Bank and structural Mm -hmm. adjustment programs of the 1980s and the like, and started to form an interest in developing country economics and also a little bit of an interest in engaging in the public sphere around important issues like debt cancellation. So I spoke at a few events and wrote a couple of sort of little reports and what have you about it. There wasn't, I was an amateur at that point, to be quite honest with you, but the main (laughs) thing there was that. I developed the interest and the enthusiasm for it. And, um, my, I'm again a, a bit of a strange academic in that I'm, I'm not a particularly good reader or writer, but I'm not a bad talker. I can talk about stuff. Come. Um, so I actually suited engaging with civil society and with NGOs and with activists. And because they, I could, I could understand complicated economics well enough because I'm an academic. But more importantly, I could explain it in a way that non-economists could relate to. And so I found myself quite useful to those people. And uh, um, I had a great deal of sympathy for the, the desire to approach development differently and to challenge some of the ways in which the large organizations saw development and related to developing countries and address poverty and the like. Um and i felt i could bring some academic sort of rigor to that uh, that um, and some creativity to it that, that perhaps uh, my sort of activist friends who didn't have economics backgrounds um were were not really able to do so that was kind of a pivot time starting with the uh, around 2000 and then through the, the sort of 2000 to 2020 phase uh, gradually built up my research my ori- orientation of my research more towards these uh, development economics topics and Mm-hmm. And probably again, sort of over the last 10 years, it drifts even more towards the engagement side. So, uh, and less towards writing boring academic papers that hardly anybody reads in, you know, <laughs> in journals and what have you. Um, just because, well, you've only got so much time in your life and you want to make sure you have the greatest impact. And so I felt like in the short to medium term, the best impact I could make would be. With um, you know, engaging with civil society, engaging with government, uh, and uh, addressing tangible, real development challenges um, mm-hmm. with creative thinking and some good intellectual background. So that's kind All of right. my my journey in a, in a tr- sort of An a, ele-
0: a very long elevator pitch.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <Ding.
0: laughs> All right. Well. That, that's all very interesting and I, I really want to touch more on the idea of making it relevant and how you kind of operationalize that and what that actually means. So I think it'd be a good time now to talk about Timor-Leste. Um, Tom and I, when we were seeing in your lectures, you talked a lot about Timor-Leste and a lot of the data we used uh, in your intro to business statistics course was about Timor-Leste and the data you, had, you and your research team collected over there. Am I right in saying that was one of the ways um, that you started operationalizing all your your thinking and making an impact working with civil society and government
1: yeah yeah that that's very true so probably uh, the sort of uh, in a in a nutshell my niche in all of this uh, is that I'm got some economics training so I understand sort of the economic thinking and I'm good with data and Again, if you're trying to make a difference to government policy or to civil society, then a very powerful weapon that a weapon for that process is evidence and data. And uh, so I I found myself uh, uh, in the sort of early days of research just getting a hold of data and actually shedding some light on what's actually going on with data. Um, and Translating that into the public policy, into into some sort of response to the public policy issues that were being addressed at the time in that developing country setting. So that's kind of what I tried to find myself doing. Um, Timor Leste came along really as an opportunity, uh, uh, which is related to coffee, um, because for back in the late 1990s, I got involved in the fair trade Mm -hmm. movement. At the same time, I was getting involved in. uh, debt cancellation, and so I joined an organisation that used to sell uh, tea from, or still sells tea from Sri Lanka, uh, imported from sort of a, a sort of local um, organisation in Sri Lanka that, and the fair trade model being to try and really benefit the producers more than what you get out of mainstream production. Um, we also then started uh, importing some coffee from uh, East Timor, uh, from Timor Leste, back in the Uh, mid-2000s and so I got interested in understanding a little bit more about Timor-Leste and about the coffee industry there. So together with a a friend we uh, travelled over to Timor-Leste a couple of times and just tried to get a feel for the country and for the coffee industry and so on. Coffee is their largest export and it's the main income source for about half of the farmers in Timor well yeah probably a bit bit under half the farmers in Timor so 20 percent of the population uh, rely on coffee for their income so it's a pretty sizable part of the economy so for me my interest in fair trade leading me to wanting to buy coffee um, leading to me to wanting to understand the Timorese economy is how I kind of got into a particular interest in Timor estate right and uh, that started back around about 2008, 2009, mm-hmm. not long after they just had a sort of a mini uh, sort of a crisis here. Um, so that's kind of a uh, pretty uh, eye-opening experience So because for the period before that, my study of, ac- of developing countries had been largely academic. Yeah. visited a couple of countries here and there and visited poor communities and so on. But uh, uh, this was much more of an investment at actually understanding Real people than what their life is actually like, and it makes a big difference to the the numbers that you look at in a in a spreadsheet, yep. uh, which um, make and 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 I again I'm a great believer in the numbers, mm-hmm. um, but being able to connect that number about you know when you when you've got a question in a survey that asks what kind of toilet do these people have, <laughs> and you know everything from a flush toilet through to um, a tree and a spade kind of thing. Then it's you know for me it's just a question in a survey and I uh, classify it and I might use that in some little report and so on. But to then to actually go and visit people and to uh, just to uh, see the toilet. to imagine yeah to see the the toilets or to to imagine the the fear that a woman may have to actually have to get up in the middle of the night in the dark and wander around. In the bushes to find somewhere to go to the toilet because there is no other safe place for her to do that um, mm. you know that's what a, that's what it means when in that little survey spreadsheet there, there's a there's a seven next to that type of toilet you know seven being the worst type of toilet you can imagine um, that's a real thing in someone's life right um, and a real day-to-day i mean how often do we go to the toilet in a day if you can excuse that thing you know it's it's a it's a very big part of our lives yeah <laughs> And it's real for these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something that, for me, was a number in a data set, but which actually becomes a... Tangible. I, mean, I always knew it was real, but a very much more tangible thing when you actually start to, to meet real people and spend time with yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. I think that's definitely
0: something... I don't know about Tom, but definitely me. When I was in those lectures, uh, we, we would have the tutorials before and we'd sit in the computer labs and look at this data and try and make sense of it and follow your... Well, written out steps of how to get this data to look and uh, tell you things. um, That it was all the data had things it was trying to tell you, but we just had to order it in a way that helped us see that. Um, And then we would go to your lectures on it, it was like sometimes twice a week, I think, and it was on an afternoon. Uh, We'd sit in your lectures and you'd give us these stories about being there in Timor Leste, collecting this very data and and really making it real. I guess there's two ways to live, I suppose. You can always be behind the computer or you can be out and about and living it. Um, so it was, I think that was very much something that your course had that was quite rare otherwise was that bridging the gap between data and, and the lived experience behind data and, and progress, I suppose.
1: Yeah. No, that, that's a good point. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And I think, um, the academic can, can really shed light for students on that tangible reality if, if we can have a few of those experiences that we bring into the classroom, not just treated as pure theories. Yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: So actually was one of my questions. I, I wanted to know in Team Leste how the statistics have changed over the years that you've been collecting the data and watching the country get back on its feet. And then on the flip side of that, how has it changed visually? Do the numbers tell you that the progress is, – is it – one for one, like if the stats go up ten percent, does it feel ten percent better there? You know, having you know, as you go back and you collect more data, do, when you see the change, do, do the numbers and your lived experience link together? I know it's a tough question.
1: But... No, that, that's a that's a good question. Though I understand what you're saying, and and the short answer is, as long as you uh, study and report the right numbers, the, the answer is yes. And a bit of, sounds and... like a cop out. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. But um, there's two types of. Let me see. I don't. I don't want to bore listeners too much with a whole lot of um, technical on, do details. It. But one of the challenges that you've got is Timor Leste is a um, resource-dependent country. So their large part of their income, their budget, is funded from the oil and gas activities that take place in the Timor Sea between Australia and. Uh, Timor, So from north of Darwin up to Timor-Leste Timor- is just a few hundred kilometres and there's lots and lots of oil rigs out there between the two. Um, and that uh, most of that is in Timor's territory or is effectively owned by Timor and they get a very large part of their income from that. I see. And when I say most, um, essentially 90% of the government's budget is funded from the royalties and the taxes they collect from oil and gas. Wow. And the government's budget itself comprises of uh, 60 to 70 percent of GDP of the total economy. Um, So put all that together and and, and there are sort of flow on effects as well. Put all that together, oil and gas is a major part of the economy. So what can happen is you can you can have an increase in the price of oil um, around the world because of whatever reason, and all of a sudden GDP, or sorry, the income of Timor-Leste goes up um, and uh, they look like they're doing better. But that is completely unrelated to the on-the-ground experience of people. Mm-hmm. I see. Uh, because all that means is that there's a little bit more money in what's referred to Timor as the petroleum fund, which is the sort of capital reserve that they store their money in. Yep. And uh, uh, that doesn't make any difference to anybody uh on the ground it starts to get a little bit closer to people when it gets out of the petroleum fund and gets spent by the government on the government's activities you know day-to-day spending of government can benefit people but even then you get a few problems because uh, if they spend it on um, you know improving schools and education and health and uh, improving roads then you start yeah you get some tangible differences and on and on the provision of an electricity network there's all of those things is have, is, are exactly the things the government spends some of their money on, and they make a difference to people. So I, the, the short story of that is that there have been some significant improvements. But unfortunately, sometimes the government has also spent some money on um, projects which have not produced benefits. And this is one of the great challenges. Of, and, uh, I often make the statement when I'm talking in Timor Leste and talking about the, the challenges, and um, is that I've never run a country before. <laughs> I, um, so your job is damn difficult yeah. so don't any time anybody criticizes you um, you can turn around to them and say uh, well you know uh, you try <laughs> see how you go <laughs> so it is a very hard job and so it's fair to say that sometimes the government has spent money on projects that have not been particularly beneficial to the to the wider community they They've built a brand-new airport that hardly gets anybody flying through. it. They've got a brand-new road, four-lane highway somewhere with hardly any traffic on it. So there's just a few of those unfortunate mega projects, which have been a bit wasteful uh, and and not really benefited people. But that's kind of not the main issue. The main issue is that when you look at the economy for Timor-Leste or whatever it might be, it looks a lot healthier than it has been because of this oil and resource-driven kind of economy mm-hmm. and the fact is that whilst depending on what year you look at you know 70 80 percent of the economy is oil and gas revenues 0.1 yep. percent of the employment is in oil and gas so you, there's no jobs in oil and gas in timor so if you want to deal with the massive levels of underemployment in the country then you're wasting your time investing in oil and gas it's not going to do anything for employment. Mm-hmm. So you have to look at a different set of numbers if you want to know what the lived experience of people is. Yeah, yeah. And the good news is there are excellent um, insights into that from data sets. They're collected. There are, you know, the census data. The, um, there's other things called the Living Standards Survey. There's a, a, a health survey that's done by the WHO every few years. So there's various surveys of real households and real people. There are business activity surveys. And based on all these many data sets, you can get a very good insight to what's actually going on uh, on the ground. And and the short answer to that is that generally things are improving, but they're improving slowly. Mm -hmm. So for example, the number of people, the percentage of the population that do have a decent toilet to use, uh, has improved quite substantially uh, over the last 10 or 15 years. And uh, so this is uh, excellent progress there. The percentage of households that now have electricity uh, has grown quite dramatically as well um, So you know there are, there are encouraging signs um, the percentage of people who are living in urban areas as opposed to rural areas is steadily growing and so you're seeing an urbanization and a little bit of modernization of people's lives that tends to go along with that. all of that's in the data yep and all of that's in what you observe in a sort of anecdotal real experience. So that data, I think, doesn't lie. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not perfect, but it doesn't lie. It tells you a story of change, story of slow improvement, um, but probably too slow for a lot of people's likings. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely improving. Interesting.
0: I've just had a thought listening to you speak just now. Um, have you read um, The Island? by Aldous Huxley.
1: No, I haven't, no. Oh, it's yeah. very,
0: very good, uh, anyone listening, the thousands of people who are. Um, <laughs> uh, they should definitely yeah. read it. Um, uh, it's Huxley creates this world where it's an island of people and everyone's happy. Um, so it's a bit of a utopian kind of, not real, unfortunately, um, and it's a community of people living on an island, in happiness, um, there's low rates of um Crime, low rates of unhappiness, low rates of unemployment. There's sufficient resources for everyone. So it's a bit of like an ideal scenario, kind of a stranded on a desert island, but you've got everything you need type situation. And there's a royal family and the royal family, the king dies and the son, who at the time is but a teenager, inherits um, the throne. And Huxley begins the story at this point where the son begins to invest in oil and the military that comes with it. And all the traditions and things that made the island great uh, begin to unravel as the the country modernises in uh, inverted brackets. And as they adopt Western approaches and begin opening up their borders, um, their traditions and, and all those great things fall apart and the island has to go from ground zero to develop using the oil money. Um, so I'd like to just pose this question to you. I know it's a bit, bit of a tough one. Maybe do you think that before the West got in and had a look at Timor Leste, was it sunshine and rainbows, and 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 this progress pathway they are now on and we're now tracking? Do you think that their traditional way of life perhaps uh, would have been sufficient, or do you think there is genuine progress going on?
1: Oh, that that is a deep question, and I I think um, actually I hear two points okay. in your, your description of the Aldous Huxley mm-hmm. book. One is the question is, is is uh, uh, oil and resource-driven development a yeah. good thing? <laughs> or a harmful yeah. thing? Uh, <laughs> yes. And then secondly, um, you know, is development at all a good thing? Yeah. <laughs> uh, or modernization. Yeah. And yeah. Modernization at all a good yeah. thing. And, and I think I, I have a pretty clear answer to the second okay. question, is modernization a good thing? And, and I think absolutely, yes, it is. Okay. The fact of the matter is that uh let me let me just qualify that by saying yes it is if it's if it's respectfully and appropriately managed and that of course comes to the point about resource development typically is not <laughs> um, so uh, and the reason I say yes quite categorically is because um when given the opportunity those who live the you know the idyllic Island life that Eldis Huxley describes, mm-hmm. which is far ideally, um, <laughs> in reality, yes. uh, are given the opportunity to move beyond that, they grab it with open arms. Yep. Yep. Um, it is not an easy life when you literally spend six hours a day fetching water mm. and firewood um, so that you can have some means of cooking your food and uh, you know washing yourselves and your clothes. And uh, simply surviving, or sitting huddled in a hut with a mud floor when it's pouring with rain in the monsoon season. Mm-hmm. Um, just basically trying, you know, with a whole family in one hut there waiting for the, the rain to stop and, the, and coping with the mud that's outside. You know, that, that's not a pleasant and enjoyable life. Sure, when the rain stops and the kids are out splashing in the puddles, it all looks very idyllic. But uh, there's a lot of hard work and a lot of stressful work in that. Mm-hmm. And, it's not a fun thing to to have a family member ill and be so far from help that, well, they die. And um, mm. there's no way that person, you know, would have died if they'd been in the suburbs of, of Australia. Um, they would have been ten minutes drive from medical help, which would have fixed that problem early on. Uh, those are realities of, of uh, rural extreme poverty, and they're not pleasant. Um, to live with, and you have got Timor-Leste has even now one of the highest uh, rates of stunting of children in the world, uh, the top three in the world. And, um, that's telling us that malnutrition is a major issue amongst children, even despite some of the good progress that's been made. And so that's, that's the reality. And I think development that actually addresses some of those needs is very welcome development and it development in of that type requires modernisation, in inverted yep. quotes, in some form. Um, it needs it needs wealth generation. We need to create livelihoods or opportunities for people to earn their livelihoods, to, to generate wealth in the society, in the community, so that we can provide government services, we can uh, have infrastructure, people can have just choice about how they spend their money and so mm. on. All of those things are good outcomes if we can achieve them in a good way. Yep. Um,
0: You've made a good case there. I do
1: concede. The problem is, of course, the resource-driven approach to Mm. that messes that process up. And the key to good development is actually development that is owned by the the subjects of that development, the citizens Mm. and the nation itself. Cooperative. Yeah. It's it's a collaborative exercise of us working together to figure out what kind of country do we want to be, how do we want to invest our, our Efforts uh, to shape our country our way. And that way, the the benefit of that is that it is much more respectful of cultural subtleties uh, than what an an outsider would bring. Right. Okay. Resource driven development mucks that up because almost invariably that means outsiders come in and they come in with large amounts of money all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's all those strings, um, kind of ambiguities about. Who gets to control that money within the country and um, all that sorts of things, and it it doesn't produce good development, unfortunately, in most cases.
2: Mm.
0: Right, okay. Well, it is a tricky um, web. Um, Nothing's ever as simple as black and white, so I suppose that was a really good response and answer to that. I think just to piggyback on that that idea of, collaborative and cooperative development, Um, having the people being invested and active in that process of defining your country and and making those decisions as a group. Maybe you could give us a bit of an idea of trade wins, um, because I I don't know too much about it, but I gather it's not your typical model where that kind of collaboration and cooperation is something built into the way you do things, if if you believe uh, and think in such a way. Am I right?
1: Yes, yes, that's true. So Tradewinds um, is uh, the organization, the volunteer organization I'm part of that imports the tea from uh, Sri Lanka and the coffee from Timor-Leste. And we sell that with a little warehouse that we share with another organization in um, Melbourne. And we sell that by mail order to people all around the country uh, to just really try and promote the thought process that you know, we have a direct relationship with these producers. The producers are real people with real lives. They're low-income people yep. uh, who deserve some justice, some trade justice in how we actually uh, relate to them. Mm-hmm. But the key, so that's kind of our, our values, as it were. But the key thing about the way we approach it is that for us, trade is primarily centered around a relationship. So when people often talk about the fair trade movement, often with fair trade, its focus is on fair price. simply says, you know, coffee farmers are poor, uh, rich countries in the West exploit their poverty by paying them a pittance for their coffee, buy it super cheap and then, you know, sell it at exorbitant prices in some expensive cafe in Melbourne sort of thing and all the people in the middle make all the yeah. money and the farmers are still poor. That's that's a not, a, not an unfair description of reality. <laughs> and fair trade comes along and says we need to... Re- we need to sort of intervene in the market to make sure farmers get a fair price for their coffee, um, and then everything else flows on from yep. there. So that's that's a noble cause for fair trade, and I and I have a great sympathy for it. Absolutely, but it's sort of to me uh, not enough because it boils the quotes problem for the farmer down to one of price, and it simply says if you pay them more. Um, then that'll be it. You can continue to have a transactional relationship with them, um, just provided you give them enough money. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things we'd like to do is to remind ourselves that trade is actually, at its heart, a relationship between two people or two countries or two organisations. And we build into our market-based system an attitude to trade, which is a competitive one, which says that I'm here to get your goods at the cheapest possible price that I can. You, the seller, are there to sell your goods to me at the highest possible price you can achieve. Mm-hmm. And so we are competing with each other. We're both pursuing our selfish interests. And out of that comes, you know, a market price and a trade that takes place. Yeah. So that's, that all. you know, generally works pretty well, but it's, it's built on an attitude of competition and of selfishness, mm-hmm. and I think that's a fundamental flaw with our world. You know, yeah. that we think that that sort of um, kind of competing self interests thing can can save um, us. save the world, and it and <laughs> it actually works wonderfully well in so many ways. But take two thousand and nine, uh, two thousand and twenty, mm-hmm. COVID nineteen, and you realise that actually competition is not the go. It's it's actually to fix the world's problems, we're going to need some cooperation. We're going to need countries to sit down and talk to each other about climate change and agree together mutual commitment to achieving some goals. Or countries that are going to sit down together and come up with a joint plan about how we distribute vaccines so that we all benefit. Because if you know one greedy country takes all the vaccine and their neighbour gets no vaccine, uh, then their neighbors are just going to walk across the border and continue to spread the virus in their, you know, it doesn't work. You can't, yep. you, can, you can try and build a wall around a back, <laughs> uh, around a virus, but it's pretty porous wall. Yes. So, mm. uh, to an extent at least. So, we are in a world where cooperation is essential, and yet we build an economy around competition and purely on competition. So, for us, trade that we're trying to model with our thing is a trade is relationship. So, we know the 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 organisations and the people and, to various extents, the farmers that we actually buy from in Timor-Leste. And so when we talk fair with them, it's about saying, well, how can we, as the people buying this coffee from you, buy the coffee in a way that is fair to you? Mm -hmm. And so, for example, that involves us making a prepayment of some of the price of the coffee before the harvest season. Um, So typically a farmer will grow their coffee... Uh, during the wet season and uh, that's sort of November through to uh, March and then they'll harvest it about May or June and they'll export it. The company will export it in August, September. Uh, It'll arrive somewhere like Australia or Europe or whatever in November, December and then finally the coffee people get paid for the coffee, um, you know, the end of the year. So they've got six to 12 months to wait to get paid for their coffee. And that doesn't seem fair when these are poor farmers who uh, essentially haven't got enough money to feed their families. Mm -hmm. And in my first research project where we looked at coffee farmers, we compared the number of meals people were eating in February, which was before the harvest, to what they were eating after the harvest, after they'd received their payment. And an average household was eating 2.5 to 3 meals a day after they got paid and 1 to 1.5 meals a day during the wet season where they didn't have uh, access to money. So that's not great for kids nutrition, uh, where, you know, constant small meals is a much better nutritious way to eat, let alone what they're eating, but the fact that they didn't even have enough money to actually put meals on the table more than once a day is is a problem. So our model is to say, we have a relationship with you, let's work together. How can we make this relationship work well for you as well as for us? particularly given there's a power imbalance here. We've got a lot more money than you. you. So, okay, well, why don't we pay you a down payment on the coffee in February? So that's step one. So they get partial payment in February on the promise that they'll deliver us some coffee later in the year. And then, look, you know, you guys are not doing great financially. You've got extra costs because your roads are not very good and so on. So we'll pay a little bit more for the coffee than what you might get if you just sold to the local trader, for example because we want to honour the fact that you put a lot of work into producing this coffee, far more than, um, you know, the, than given the constraints that you yep. face. And so we pay a little bit more for the coffee. And uh, then we uh, say, well, you know, you guys would be great if you got some organic certification for your coffee. But I'll tell you what, there's a mountain of paperwork for you to do. Let's see if we can sit down together and help you with that paperwork. So we sit down and work our way through um, certification processes. Which Lucky you. The team are Coffee producers never going to be able to do but we Westerners can understand the bureaucracy a lot yep. better. So that's just what a, a friend would do for a friend. Um, in this case it's a trading relationship but the key word is it's a relationship. It's a relationship of mutual respect um, and one of support for whatever the need is that's coming from from the other side. So that's kind of the model, the philosophy that's behind yep. it and those examples of sort of how it works
0: okay it's quite interesting um you know i think it's both um a blessing and potentially a missed opportunity that that message that philosophy that you just spoke about you don't toot your horn enough brett Uh, i mean you're trying to get the word out about these initiatives you're doing and the research you're doing i think that something like that that deserves um like a harvard business review article needs to be about that
1: yeah, look, you're probably right. I, I, I'm uh, how do you put it? I'm a bit lazy. <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. I don't know. <laughs> right, right. I love doing. I love doing what I do. Yeah. I don't mind talking about it. If people asking mm-hmm. me. Yeah, yeah. Know, I'm happy to chat with you and tell you about it. But I'm not going to. I'm just not very good at going out of the way, out of my way, and self promoting. Yeah, at, yeah, yeah know, fair enough. People ask me. I'm happy to. And which is which is a failing. I agree. I'm not
0: sort of failing. It's just a, it's an opportunity that you have yet to take.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. There you go. Okay. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Alrighty. righty. So if somebody wants Tradewinds coffee or tea, do you have a website?
1: Yes. Um, tradewinds.org.au. We'll get them there. And then pretty <laughs> obvious from there.
0: Yeah. All right. Cool. Too easy. Alrighty. righty. Um, well, I think I've covered everything um, that I had on my little to-do list here. I really appreciate all the time you've taken and um, your thoughts and most more importantly, all the good work you've done over your career and Hopefully, there is still to be done, and I look forward to seeing what else you you come up with and and the the things you write about. So, pleasure to have you on.
1: Good, on you. Thank you, Brett, and keep up the good work for you and Tom. And uh, uh, I think just getting people thinking a little bit about life and society and the way we operate is uh, is great. Uh, we need we need to change people's um, our mindsets as much as we do, you know, the sort of practical realities. And so, this kind of work that you're doing is a great way to do that. So, good on you.
0: Yeah, thank you. It's uh, the Dan- Danella Meadows and her points of change. At the top is values and uh, purpose of the system.
1: Very good. Spot on.
0: Yeah. <laughs> all righty. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Brett. Thank you for your time and um, all the best for 2021.
1: Yeah, thanks. All the best to you too. Okay. See ya. Bye. Bye.
0: All righty, Tommy. First impressions?
2: Mate, I do love a bit of Brett Ender. We had a great time uh, five years ago now. It's crazy. Six years ago. Mm. Holy crap. Six. uh, Yeah, it's been a while. (laughs) But no, it's good to hear his voice again and and just exactly how I remember him, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, he doesn't change. Uh, he, He might get a bit older and a bit wiser, but mostly the same guy. It's great.
2: Indeed. Indeed. What I really liked about the way that he that he talked in in this in this podcast as as well as when we we're in a lecture theater was bringing and you, you brought up this point was bringing the real life experience to the data i mean growing up in australia you can sometimes feel like you're in a bit of a bubble but to really grasp the gravity of what's happening elsewhere in the world i thought was very important for my education and for for brett to be able to convey it it really it really strikes
0: home mm. yeah now on the head we we are an island here in australia and we are quite far removed It's both a a blessing and a curse, um, quite secure and, and prosperous nation that we that we have, but we are quite removed from the rest of the world and the struggles and um, the different life experiences uh, that other continents and uh, countries have. So yeah, exactly right. Brett did a really great job at kind of bridging that gap for us and bringing it home and telling it through his stories that you uh, were telling in class and then show us the data as well.
2: Yeah, for sure. And I mean, it,
0: it's particularly important with
2: uh, a subject such as business statistics, because you're just looking at numbers on a spreadsheet.
0: Yeah, pretty dry. Yeah, sometimes. sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's quite interesting when we had that discussion, um, just moving right along, about, uh, had that really good explanation about how a resource dependent country like Timor with where so much of its revenue comes from oil and um, its natural resources, that a lot of the people in the country are not employed or actively part of that that progress or that development, uh, which which makes the government so important or governance. Absolutely, yeah. I, I
2: think that just hits home the importance of looking at the right data. Because, as as he said in in the interview, in the podcast, he said that it looks like East Timor, Timor Leste, is progressing at at quite a rate but that's just simply based on 60 70 percent of the gdp has been made up by oil and gas so it, it was definitely an interesting thing for him to say well you have to kind of look at the right data when only 0.1 percent of the the population is employed in those industries you know what the rest of the population is doing if, if all of government was decided by 0.1 percent of the population I, I would argue that that's not a very good government although some countries around the welcome world, to america yeah in some countries around the world that kind of seems what, what it is yeah, but i guess that's that's yeah. the idea of democracy and i'm not sure is timor leste a democracy
0: I'm not too sure myself. Uh, We probably should have asked. Yeah, and I guess there was an interesting
2: discussion there about the need and appropriation of foreign direct investment in resource-rich but relatively poor countries. It kind of seems like they get taken advantage of and they don't receive the benefits of of what they actually own in some regards. And, and, And I guess that goes to his quote, the best development or the key to good development is development that is owned by the subjects of that development. And he also pointed out that this provides a more sensitive approach and, and allows them to really benefit from from what they own, not, not the people outside, even though they may still improve their living standards or social capital or, or whatnot. Or any good things, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But he said that at least that way if if the development is owned by by those that are living in that country
0: then they're able to benefit in the best way possible i i'd, I'd probably temper that i mean i get, i get it and i probably very much agree with that but i think in the case of oil and gas we probably don't want uh, people who are inexperienced or don't have the technical capacity or expertise or let alone experience to be you know mining and drilling the oceans for oil i i, I don't think even the, the, the just solid ground as well, we probably don't want that, and it, and that would probably lead to you know some some sort of large scale environmental consequences. Even if it's done well, it's there is that consequence. But it, maybe there's that higher up up the chain. There's there's no incident um, of you know spills. Yeah, for sure. I, I guess that's a, a very fair point as well.
2: But also, there's an argument that could be made that these countries would be worse off if that. Phone direct investment didn't come in anyway, so mm-hmm. I guess there's that trade off that you kind of have to
0: weigh up. Yeah, and and maybe also you know maybe oil and gas should it be a pathway to development? Yeah, that's a, a very progressive way of thinking about it. <laughs> well, hopefully, as the world um, shifts away to shifts away from oil um, for transport and energy, that um, that that becomes a necessity. Yeah, for sure. Uh, perhaps, and that you have people actively involved in whatever their country's natural skills and Perhaps resources a linkage. Yeah, you know, where, where where the resources you have abundant soils and productive soils mixed with the people, perhaps is a is a great avenue for Timor-Leste. Absolutely, but I uh, I guess we're not going to figure that out by ourselves, chatting on this podcast. Probably not. Probably not. We can twiddle our thumbs all day. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah, uh, Tom, maybe you can explain cash crops for those of us who aren't aware of what a what a cash crop is. Well,
2: basically, a cash crop is where you're able to grow something and exchange it for cash pretty much immediately. So in the case of coffee, once you pick it off the tree, you can sell that to somebody and get cash for it immediately. So I guess I guess that would also be something similar to cocoa or wheat or grain, something
0: like that. Bananas. Yep. yep. Okay, so it's just a way for people who can grow uh, or have land, they, they can grow these crops and quickly sell them and use that money for whatever it is they actually need to feed their families or... Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that's also
2: a, a downfall for for coffee in some regard because for a lot of farmers that depend on cash and, and that has been made abundantly clear by Brett when he said, you know, after the crop, they get to eat 3.5 meals a day mm-hmm. or three meals a day. And when they don't have their crop uh, it, like in the middle of the growing season they only eat one to 1.5 meals per day. I mean, that, that's pretty abundantly clear as to how important this the cash is in mm-hmm. the, these societies. Uh, but in the in the terms of coffee industry, when they're not making enough money from their coffee, they can exchange it for other cash crops that they're able to grow
0: and turn into cash uh, quicker. And he, he mentioned that, uh, quite a large statistic. I can't remember the exact number, but that large number of people rely on it for that very purpose. Um despite the the oil prosperity that so many people were engaged in some form of cash crop uh, to feed themselves and um, look after their families. I thought that was both stark and maybe also a good thing. I don't know. Yeah, I guess they, they don't really have
2: much else to be doing. Like, There's not really any other financial industries or other things like that to get into. So I guess cash crops are pretty much in a rural setting, mm-hmm. pretty much all you've got. Wow,
0: yeah.
2: I thought it was really interesting the way that Brett spoke about trade being a relationship. I mean, a lot of companies do say that, you know, we're a relationship-based firm and our customers, we love to have a relationship with them. But I still think it boils down in most of those circumstances to being on competitive level. And Brett was arguing that we can't still keep thinking of trade this way. We need to have a better idea of cooperation and the the way that I thought that he put it perfectly was, we would treat them as if they were our friends and and I had never thought about it that way, and I thought it was it was uh, very pertinent i would I would never let my friends you know be in a situation where they could only have one meal a day. That's to me mm. absolutely crazy. And
0: that same argument, why would you not just treat them as if they were your friends? yeah it sounds great and it's probably something you can do on a small scale if you're a small player and you're dealing with a small number of people but i'm just imagining if you're this large corporate entity like some of these big big companies are without mentioning names they they probably can't um and that's probably not a good thing right if, if you're if you're so big as a company you're that big that you're unable to have direct relationships uh, and i say direct relationships not in that coffee sense but just a literally a relationship and know the people you're transacting with it's probably not a good thing you're you're almost a machine at that point
2: I I can't say that like it would work especially in this day and age but definitely on some some sort of level and and I guess this also can tie back to to the situation as to why it's so competitive is because perhaps we are still growing up in a bubble or we are living in a bubble where we don't really see the other side of the transaction. You know what? What is the actual implications of, of buying something in, let's say, the Melbourne? What that means for the people who produce it in wherever, be that Timor Leste, be that Africa, be that Asia, be that America, be that
0: South America? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's something that a lot of people and, and countries are trying to work out, businesses particularly, trying to bridge that gap and and explore that a bit deeper, but I feel like we're 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 experiencing this kind of global world where everything's so well connected. At least it was before COVID, and everything was so well connected that you know we were we were consuming goods from all over the world every day uh, without blinking an eye. But now we're trying to dig a bit deeper and understand the people behind those goods and the, and services that we consume, and I think. So that's happening, right? But then we're also seeing this thing where the companies are getting so big that we're dealing, ourselves, we're dealing with a company that doesn't actually know us, and they're probably dealing with supplies that they don't actually know either. And as those companies get bigger and bigger and buy out the smaller and smaller businesses, we're, we're having a very well-connected world socially, but then the, the companies that are managing the flow of goods and services are so big that they're becoming the anonymous people, if that makes sense. I don't know if I've described that, but I feel like we're kind of, we're, we're kind of uh, there's two streams flowing and they're not going the same way. Or at the same rate. Well, yeah. Because um, ideally you have people who, you know, if you go to the cafe, the guy or lady or whoever it is at the cafe knows the beans in the coffee example, and they, they have a strong enough understanding of where the beans have come from, that the roaster has got the story about the, the people growing them and the, the community that's being supported. Uh, year after year buy this coffee that this person in Melbourne is drinking like that kind of thing probably won't happen with a large corporate entity yeah for sure for sure
2: but yeah overall I thought it was a very very interesting podcast Brett and and geez it was tough listening to a, a few bits where I was like which Brett am I talking to they're all Brett's <laughs> Brett
0: squared Brett squared that's the one that's the one but I absolutely loved it yeah it was good it was really good uh and uh it was really exciting to have uh, an old professor on board and, and it was, he was very gracious with his time and his thoughts as well. So if he's listening, thank you very much, Brett. Appreciate it, Brett. Well done, Brett. Good job, Brett. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'll take uh. all the praise. Thank you. Well, that is pretty much a wrap on this episode. If you're interested to learn more, uh, feel free to head to our website called dot live, and you can read our blog post uh, where we discuss just what we, what we heard and, and, uh, there are some links in there as well if you want to read more about Brett and his work. And yeah, keep, keep your ears posted. Uh, we've got another episode coming out soon. I'm talking to a fantastic gentleman by the name of Carl Opst. Uh, he's working with a, a large organization that is working to help countries, uh, so Australia and the UK in particular, uh, with their carbon accounting and, and reporting on all, all facets of the activities in the nation. So we're going to dig a bit deeper with that. And it and it spreads from this idea of six capitals, which is a book I recently read, and and Carl was uh, part of that. So, looking forward to that discussion in the next week or two. Fantastic! Can't wait for that. And,
2: uh, buddy, mate, we've we've had listeners from sixteen countries around the world, so we are really
0: expanding our our reach we are a podcast of the world officially global that's it it's, uh, quite exciting and thank you for everyone who does listen it's um, it's nice to be part of a community that's interested in global issues and global questions and the world that we inhabit absolutely absolutely couldn't have put it any better that's it Alrighty, brady i'll uh i'll leave
2: it there Alrighty, righty we'll chat soon sounds good man have a good one
0: all right see ya Ciao. thank you for listening to this episode of Courtney. We will be back next time with a brand new guest to mix and contemplate more Cordial Conversations about the world, the people in it, and their work. If you happen to be enjoying our dulcet tones, listen to more Cordial Conversations on all major platforms, like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you still can't get enough of this, check out our website and Instagram, both are at cordial.live, the links will be in the description.